What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. Today is Friday, April 15th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nicky, how's it going, buddy? Matt, hey, it is going well, and I want to wish the listeners a happy tax day. Hope you got your taxes in, and if you didn't, I hope you got an extension. Uh, and then also a happy Easter and Passover to all those people who celebrate. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of good things coming up uh, within this week, so let's hope everyone gets a big return. And uh, happy Easter and happy Passover if you're celebrating. The Ides of April. <laughs> Do not beware that one. <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot going on. Uh, some personal news for me. My cold is gone. Wow. Finally. But if I still sound congested, it's because my allergies have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> it is Vala Alta season. Free ad right there. Yeah. Free ad. We'll get to the, the real ad later. But yeah, let's get into the show. <laughs> Welcome to the planet today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. Yes. All right. So let's get into our quick hits. So our first one is by Zach Budrick of The Hill, who writes, White House details immense risks of climate change for federal budget. The Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, called the financial risks of climate change immense in its risk assessment last week, citing estimates by the Network for Greening the Financial System, which is a network of dozens of banks around the world. The estimates said the trajectory of climate change could lead to a 3 to 10% decrease in GDP, or gross domestic product, by 2100. They also said that climate change could cost federal revenues around 7.1%, which works out to be around $2 trillion by the end of the century. Specific costs they calculated included increases in crop insurance subsidies due to crop losses. More frequent hurricanes could increase annual coastal disaster spending by $94 billion annually. And under 10-foot sea level rise, it would cost over $43.7 billion to replace over 12,000 federal buildings. So, in a nutshell, it is not cheap. <laughs> the article said that some of the priorities in President Biden's fiscal 2023 budget should be enacted to counter these risks, including more than $7 billion to reduce emissions from the power sector and more than $5 billion to transition the transportation sector to renewable energy. The article then mentions that there's no realistic chance to pass that budget in Congress with the struggle over Build Back Better last year, but outlining President Biden's priorities are important to be able to incorporate certain measures in other bills throughout next year and the rest of this year once this budget gets proposed. Yeah. And the article closes by quoting the OBM document as saying, investments to confront the climate crisis will reduce greenhouse gas emissions, drive down clean energy prices, make our nation more resilient present new opportunities for American innovation and well-paying jobs, provide benefits to historically underserved communities, and work to protect against the long-term fiscal risks identified in the new budget analysis released today. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of good things to address, so I'm, I'm for it. But Nick, am I crazy to say that this is a good thing? 
Like the report itself is scary and basically says it's going to be expensive as hell to fight climate change, but quantifying it puts climate related investments into perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's the classic like devil, you know, the devil, you know, is better than the devil. You don't like at least we're taking actions to say this is what we need to do. This is the money we have to put aside in order to combat climate change. And here's how we do it. This is like finally putting a plan together in order to counteract climate change. Yeah. And it also makes it a lot easier to counter all those people who say, well, who's going to pay for all this when we propose any sort of investment to updating our infrastructure, for example, or transitioning more to renewable energy. So yeah, yeah, I I think that by saying, here's how much it's going to cost and here's how much it's going to cost if we don't do anything when we have to repair everything kind of makes those uh, pros and cons a little easier to stomach. Yeah, definitely. And like, that's not to say that it probably will end up on the taxpayer, but you know, it's something we have to do. Like we have to put money towards it. Yeah, it it will. Like it's, it's definitely going to come down to the public spending at some point, but it's a public service to protect the land we live on, the water we drink, the air we breathe. Like it benefits all of us. So it's, it's a community sort of effort that's going to combat this. Yeah. If you're interested in any sort of climate budgetary stuff or any sort of the backroom politics related to climate change, uh, the New York Times podcast, The Daily with Michael Barbaro on Tuesday talked about why climate change kind of got put on the back burner of the Biden administration over the past few months. Um, very good episode. It was about 25-ish minutes. So yeah, check it out if you haven't already. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's get into our next one and it is titled Africa looks to renewables to curb warming boost economies by Wanjohi Kabukuru of the Associated Press. The IPCC report that came out last Monday talked about Africa's clean energy potential across the continent and if that potential is realized it could prevent the worst of the effects of climate change boost the economic development of the continent and lift millions of people out of poverty. Africa's renewables industry is already doing really well, all things considered, with many nations boosting their push to renewables, including Kenya, Tanzania, Morocco, Egypt, Ethiopia, and South Africa. Global investment is the biggest barrier for African renewables right now, and $60 billion has been invested in Africa's renewable energy in the last two decades, whereas $2.8 trillion has been invested globally. That's only 2% of global investment, and only 3% of the world's current renewable energy capacity comes from Africa. Yeah, so basically what that all means in plain speak is that we haven't invested a lot into it compared to the rest of the world, and that's why there's not a lot of energy coming out of there compared to the rest of the world. The difference is there's a ton of potential there that this report outlines. So look, Africa's a huge continent. It's impossible to make a giant continental plan that works all throughout Africa in all of these different countries that make up the continent. Some areas, such as Kenya's Lake Turkana or the African coastline that pans from Djibouti past South Africa and then works its way back north to Cameroon, are going to be great for wind energy. Some areas won't have favorable wind energy conditions. They're going to be better served by solar energy. And something that the article highlights is how much of a game changer all of this renewable energy can be in some of these areas. It says, James Kariuki signed up for MCOPA Solar Power, a pay-as-you-go, low-cost financing for off-grid solar power to his home, 
And he said, when I installed solar power into my home, I ended up making considerable savings from the use of kerosene lamp for lighting and charcoal in my house. Hospital bills for my family have since gone down and we now have internet and watch international sports in my home. So yes, we're talking about climate change mitigation. Yes, we're talking about boosting economies, but we're also talking about just increasing the day-to-day quality of life for some people just by helping better electrify their towns, their cities, their villages, et cetera. Like this is good across the board here. Yeah, and it's just like this getting solar energy and renewable energy sources to these areas in the world is not just about putting renewable energy on the map in Africa. It's more about what we're doing to make their lives easier, you know, smoother and just overall have an awesome life. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, we have to consider here is when we get, you know, offshore wind power to our houses in America, we already have electricity. All we're doing is decarbonizing our grid. Some of these places that we're talking about here do not have electricity yet. So to offer any sort of electricity is going to make just an absolute difference in their lives. Yeah. To offer it when it's coming from solar, wind, geothermal, hydro, now we're talking about a major difference in people's lives without impacting all of the CO2 in the atmosphere. So again, like just checks off all the boxes of these big wins that we need to keep having. So yeah, absolutely. Africa has some of the most impacted regions by climate change, despite being the lowest greenhouse gas emitting continent with the lowest ability to adapt to climate change. Like we said, parts of the continent still lack electricity and cooking fuels, and the International Energy Agency, or IEA, estimates that roughly 580 million people were without power in 2019. The World Health Organization says about 906 million are in need of cleaner cooking fuels and technologies, but providing universal access using non-renewable energy sources would lead to increased global emissions, the IPCC warned. So, like we said, we are making a huge difference for millions of people by investing in renewables while also mitigating the potential damages done by going with the cheaper option, which is fossil fuel based electricity and cooking systems. Yeah. And it's just like 580 million people without power, like no source of, of electricity whatsoever. That's 7%. That's 7.5% of the whole mm-hmm. world does not have any power. It's insane when you think about like, the most basic things in your house, like literally turning on a light, turning on a lamp, boiling water, over a, yeah, boiling water to make pasta, like anything like that. It's just so simple to us. We, we, we take it for granted every single day. And like people are literally living without warmth in cold seasons. Yeah. So look, Giselle and I are going to break down this report in full next month after we've had some time to dive more into it. So if this quick hit interested you, Get excited for that episode. It's probably going to be the second Monday in May, but we will keep you posted. Yes, for sure. All right, let's move on to our next story, which is from Food and Water Watch, and it's titled, Representative Khanna, Senator Warren introduced bill to prevent corporations from profiting off of water rights. In late March, Representative Ro Khanna from California and Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts introduced the Future of Water Act, which prohibits futures trading of water or water rights and protects our country's water. It is meant to amend the Commodity Exchange Act to establish water as a basic human right that should be managed and protected as a public trust resource. 
The basic premise of the bill introduced is to say that large corporations should not be profiting off of something that people need to survive while climate change increases the severity and frequency of droughts. Prohibiting futures trading is also pretty significant here because the announcement of the water futures trading was condemned by the global water community, including the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights to Water, who actually stated, water is already under extreme threat from a growing population, increasing demands, and grave pollution from agriculture and mining industry in the context of worsening impact of climate change. I am very concerned that water is now being treated as gold, oil, and other commodities that are traded on Wall Street futures markets. Yeah, so banning futures trading pretty much makes sure that large corporations can't create severe price hikes for water by speculating or manipulating the markets. So Food and Water Watch Executive Director Winona Hodder said, it is clearer than ever that water should be treated as a scarce, essential resource, not a commodity for Wall Street and financial speculators. This bill would ban futures trading before it creates a crisis. Last year, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, or CME, announced it had certified the world's first water futures contracts, which allows investors to purchase and sell futures contracts based on water rights prices in California. Over 250 organizations have endorsed the Future of Water Act, which would, again, ban what the Chicago Mercantile Exchange announced last year. Um, And some of those organizations include Greenpeace USA, the Sunrise Movement, and Public Citizen. You can check out the full list or a copy of the legislation itself at the bottom of the article, which is linked in your show notes, as always. Yeah, and this is like an important distinction to make, too. Like, water should be a human right. And if, if you know anything about the stock market, like these big companies can trade way more than, you know, just Jimmy and Pam, yeah. you know, down the street can trade in terms of, st- in, in terms of shares and they can really manipulate the markets with, with what they do. Um, so this is definitely an important distinction to make and I'm, I'm glad it's, it's being discussed and, and talked about because water ultimately is a human right. Yeah. It's, it's just, it seems so basic, but water is essential for human life so it shouldn't come down to whether or not you can afford it (laughs) yeah exactly it should be guaranteed (laughs) like unless the the alternative is oh if you want to survive and you want to have you know clean water for your children then just don't be poor and that's like a really awful thing to say (laughs) yeah or imply yeah 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 that's that's a good point too they're not going to actually say that but (laughs) <laughs> you know that's what people are thinking when they're like, yeah, let's let's profit off of clean water. People need yeah. it. Anyway, while we're on the topic of water, um, there's a company I want to bring up. Let's all do our best to avoid Nestle. Nestle has been known to take more water from Arrowhead National Forest than they're allowed for their Arrowhead water brand. Um, they've convinced mothers in developing nations that their baby formula is as good as breast milk when in reality it actually leads to malnutrition without access to clean water. And Nestle's bottled water has the highest microplastic pollution of any plastic bottle. Nestle also owns Nestle, Poland Spring, San Pellegrino, Coffee Mate, DiGiorno, which is bad pizza anyway, Eddie's Ice Cream, Haagen-Dazs, Hot Pockets, Toll House, and many more popular brands. Uh, yeah, so if you want to learn more about this, the best and quickest place to check out is the subreddit r slash Nestle. Uh, that's the F 
curse word that Nick just bleeped out. <laughs> um, I would recommend doing some more research on any product that you find yourself buying frequently because, look, chances are there's something that might be going on behind the scenes you don't realize that you don't like too much. The too long didn't read of this entire segment is Nestle sucks, water's a human right, and I really hope that this bill passes. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed with all your sentiments, Matt. All right, let's get right into a break, and when we get back, two more quick hits. Brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up, pesticide residue found in over 70% of non-organic U.S. produce. Report by Sharon Udison of The Hill. Yeah, before we get into the breakdown of this one, um, Mom, I know you're listening out there. You were right. Uh, Thank you for always insisting I buy organic produce all throughout college, even though I was making minimum wage. Uh, you were you were correct. <laughs> There's a lot of pesticides on non-organic stuff, and uh, it turns out it's not just the same peppers. So, thank you, mom. <laughs> Moving on, the EWG or Environmental Working Group's 2022 Shoppers Guide to Pesticides in Produce revealed that traces of potentially harmed pesticides were found in most non-organic fresh fruits and vegetables in the U.S. The group's list of non-organic produce to avoid is called their Dirty Dozen, which are strawberries, spinach, kale, collard greens, and mustard greens, nectarines, apples, grapes, bell and hot peppers, cherries, pears, peaches, celery, and tomatoes. If you're hearing that list and thinking, damn, I eat a lot of those, same. (laughs) Yeah, and I also don't buy organic. So I'm, I'm really feeling bad right now, (laughs) but they also have their list of the clean 15, which had minimal risk. So that list includes avocados, sweet corn, pineapple, onions, papaya, frozen sweet peas, asparagus, honeydew melon, my favorite melon, kiwi, cabbage, mushrooms, cantaloupe, mangoes, watermelon, and sweet potatoes. So broccoli, cauliflower, and eggplant were dropped from the Clean 15 this year, and that's not because they have entered the Dirty Dozen or fallen off. It's just there's lagging testing. They might get added as more data comes in. They might not. Uh, Something to keep your eye on. If they add some of these, I wonder what the Clean 15 will become because Clean 17 still rhymes. Actually, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. That's what I get for going off script. Alexis <laughs> Temkin, a toxicologist at the EWG, said if you're eating fruits and vegetables on the dirty dozen list, it is better to eat organic or to instead eat foods on the clean 15 list. The scientists conducting the survey sampled over 45,000 produce samples, and some of the highlights they found are more than 90% of strawberries, apples, cherries, spinach, nectarines, and grapes tested positive for two or more pesticides. Kale, collard greens, mustard greens, and peppers had the most pesticides detected, and spinach actually had 1.8 times as much pesticide by weight, which is the most of any sampled crop. Jeez. And they also found that nearly 70% of produce on the Clean 15 list did not contain pesticide residue. Avocados and sweet corn were the cleanest, and the group suggested that shoppers who eat non-organic foods reconsider their shopping habits because many pesticides can be found on fruits and vegetables after they're washed, peeled, and scrubbed. Yeah, they really get deep in there. So this was uh, pretty eye-opening for me. Uh, once we're done talking about the important stuff, I have a tip for some people, but we'll, we'll get to that. Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is an eye-opener. I actually knew about strawberries being um, like notoriously bad for, for pesticides. I don't think I knew about the rest of those. And honestly, I eat quite a bit of apples. So that's not, and bell and hot peppers. Yeah, this isn't great. Yeah, dude, peppers are (laughs) kind of my go-to. So yeah, not ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. Oh, tomatoes too. I missed that. Yep. That's a bad one. Not great. Yeah. Quite a few staples in our diets, but uh, yeah. So the thing that's important to bring up, and the article acknowledges this, many families can't afford to buy organic produce. So the EWG's guide, it's not meant to let people know, you know, if you can't switch to organic, then you're screwed. They said, if you can't switch to organic because of the cost, try to eat more of the clean 15 list than the dirty dozen. If you can afford organic, that's going to be better. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our last quick hit of the week, and it's titled Germany Unveils Plan to Accelerate Green Energy Expansion from Reuters. Last week, Germany's economy and climate ministry presented a plan to speed up the expansion of renewable energy because the need to reduce the country's reliance on Russian oil has become increasingly obvious with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Germany's government established goals to expand renewables in November when establishing a coalition between their three parties. But Robert Abick, the economy minister, said the war in Ukraine outweighs their own plans. The new plan is for 80% of Germany's power to come from green energy by 2030, which is up 15% from their previous target. Today, they're at 40%. So they basically want to double their renewable energy in the next eight years. So pretty lofty goals and honestly, really exciting time to be interested in renewable energy. Habeck brought up how important this transition is from an environmental standpoint and a sociopolitical standpoint by saying the climate crisis is coming to a head and Russia's invasion shows how important it is to phase out fossil fuels. Part of the plan is to reach at least 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 and 70 gigawatts by 2045. Germany's cabinet agreed to the plans and experts expect the changes to take place on July 1st. So this is pretty cool. I mean, I'm shocked that they're at 40%. I feel like that's pretty high in terms of from countries that are in the EU. Do you have any numbers on that? I'm just curious. I don't, but I know that Germany is like one of the world leaders in wind power for the past God, decade at least. Like they've, I didn't, I didn't know it was 40% before reading this article. I knew it was kind of high, but yeah, yeah. 
that makes me think like if there are 40 already, they could definitely get to 80% in eight years. I don't know. I, I, I could see it happening. Especially with all the, the investment that's going in there from the federal and private sector, like people are calling for renewables. Like people want a clean energy economy. People want energy independence. So all of those things can come from renewables. When you have the public behind you and you have the financial backing, mm. it's not really much you have to get through past that. Yeah. Um, speaking of energy independence, look, I, I think that's great for every single country in the world because it takes out this whole weird power dynamic that certain countries have right now of Russia basically saying, and I shouldn't say Russia, it's, it's Putin, it's the Kremlin, it's not the Russian people that are you know, yeah, all yeah. supporting this. So let's call it like it is. Putin basically said, we want to invade a peaceful neighboring country of ours and you're going to let us because you need us to keep your lights on at night and to keep your house heated and your refrigerator keeping your food safe. You take out that power struggle and maybe we have a, a very different outlook on, on what's going on right now over in Eastern Europe. Yeah, for sure. Like, I'm wondering, would, would NATO have intervened? Like, if if the world was more energy independent, it's it's hard to say. But ultimately, the situation is, is rough and, you know... It makes me think like what are we what are we doing here to become energy independent too yeah you know like we we've canceled out a lot of the plans to dig for oil here which i understand like they were in they're they're, they're all back up oh they're all back up yeah they're all back up in the in the last like that that was actually what the daily episode was about that i was referencing earlier biden's basically just been telling everybody like look we want to get off russian oil entirely like just drill yeah and a lot of environmentalists are like, like <laughs> give us money to install solar and wind turbines instead. But yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's tough because there's an immediate need. It, yeah. Yeah. There's a immediate need now. So there's a no win win here. It's like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what we do. Yeah. No, it's tough to say. And on that somber note, that's it for today's episode of TPT. I'm going to be back on Monday for this month's interview. And look, it's a really good one. It's fun. It's exciting. You're going to learn a lot. Promise it's a very different vibe than what we just closed the show with. (laughs) Yes, for sure. So Matt talked with Brian Alderman and Nate Truitt about forestry. So everyone's got to listen. Yeah. Monday. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We're produced every week by Nick Chanusa, who also does the music for our show. Nick, where can people play your music for their Easter and Passover dinners on Sunday? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure if I go well with an Easter or Passover dinner, but if you wanted to listen, you could find me on soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Play it loud. On Easter. Our logo was made by (laughs) Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll catch you right here on Monday. Peace. Peace.